We are continuing our sermon series on looking for direction, today looking at how we look for direction as we make decisions in life. We're focusing today on Queen Esther. I'm going to read you a little bit of her story, and then we'll come back and delve into it more fully within the sermon. But this is a story of a queen who is Jewish, whose kinsman Mordecai is one of the leaders in the Jewish community in the town of Susa in the Persian Empire. And Mordecai has made angry one of the key leaders in the king's court, a man named Haman. Haman is so mad at Mordecai that he not only takes out his anger at Mordecai, but he issues a statement against all the Jews, not just in Susa, but through all the, through all the lands under Xerxes I. Mordecai has now been sending messages back and forth to Esther, the queen, King Xerxes I's queen, giving her advice about how she might act to save the people. So I'm reading from Esther chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, giving orders to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation, calling on all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went quickly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was in confusion. And then going on into Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, although it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts give you pleasure, God. May they be acceptable in your sight. You who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. One of the unexpected pleasures of my three years of missionary service back from 1990 to 93 was getting to know the family of one of my fellow missionaries, Liz Dillard. Liz's mom, Kay Dillard, served in Northern Illinois Conference for many years and also was a district superintendent of the Chicago Southern District. The Dillard women, Kay and the daughters, Liz and Amy, became close friends and we often talked and laughed together. 
The Dillard women have great senses of humor, but they're also very clever. Kay, in particular, is very clever and can figure out just how to handle things. She can figure out strategies and, and kind of try to manage these things. And I remember one time being with Kay and her daughters, Liz and Amy, and Liz and Amy laughing and saying, boy, mom, it's a good thing you use your powers for the good. <laughs> I continue to think about that and laugh, but also think about the truth of that, that we can be clever and thoughtful and good at strategic, and we can use that for the good, or we can use that for evil. Thank God Liz K. Dillard used it for the good as a pastor and as a district superintendent, as a person living out her Christian faith. But we've seen both ways, haven't we? How people in power and visibility can use their power for evil, or for good. How striking it is to study Esther and think about this issue of visibility and power during a week that we've been hearing such lousy news out of the Rio Olympics with Ryan Lochte, the swimmer. Someone who rose to power and importance as a member of our Olympic swimming team who then used that power trying to get out of having acted badly there in Rio, having vandalized a gas station bathroom, and then making up this story about having been robbed, trying to cover for it. And don't we as Americans hear that story and think, ugh, that's not the image of Americans we want out in the world about our Olympians. He had the power as an Olympian to send good stories, to be a good ambassador for our country. And in his case, the story instead went for wickedness and self-serving. I want to reflect with you on power, about people with power and visibility who have used their power for the good. Then to look at the story of Esther itself, to go over some of the contours of that story, so wonderfully presented by Laura Woodstrom, and then to reflect more deeply about what it may say to us in our power, but also in our everyday lives as Christians. How might we use our power for good? How might we, for just such a time as this, act for good in the name of Christ? What about these celebrities? I know that people can be kind of poo-pooing the power of a celebrity working for good, but we've all seen examples of how celebrity power or the power of people uh, who are royalty or other forms of political power can really make a difference. I think about our first ladies, how many of our first ladies have chosen a particular area into work, in, in which to work and to shine a spotlight on a problem. About Michelle Obama's work on child nutrition and before her, Laura Bush's work on literacy and helping promote reading. These were women who could have chosen just to be attractive, well-dressed first ladies who instead worked and spoke out for the good for uh, American school children. Or I think about the example of Princess Diana. Now, I know Princess Diana had a very complicated and often painful life, but I remember the huge difference that Princess Diana made when she would choose to advocate for people in difficult circumstances some of you will remember back in the late 80s when there was still so much misinformation and anxiety around HIV AIDS. What a difference it made when Princess Diana would go into her hospital and go specifically to the AIDS ward. 
I remember her touching persons with AIDS when many people were afraid that AIDS was, tr was transmitted by touch. And her action of touching persons with AIDS made a huge difference, not only in the British Isles, but as that was transmitted throughout the world. Or later on in her work, the way that Princess Diana uh, raised awareness of landmines and how landmines as a tool of war would have long-term repercussions of causing danger to civilians long after the war had been resolved. She could again have been a beautiful fashionista princess, and she was, but she also used her power for good. She used the platform and visibility she had to bring awareness to HIV AIDS, to bring awareness to landmines and the danger they caused. She used her power for the good. So what about this Esther? The Esther story is an amazing story. In some ways, it's your typical rags to riches story, but it has under it a complexity that in some ways is specific to the Jewish history and in other ways is specific to all people. We are speaking back uh, in the times of the Hebrew Bible before the birth of Jesus. We're speaking back. We remember that there was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom was vanquished by the Assyrians in the 8th century before Christ, and then in the 6th century in 586, the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom and destroyed the temple and took some of the Jews into exile. And in that time of war, Jews dispersed not only to, from out the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and Babylon, but into Persia and into North Africa and all over the area. You started to have Jews all over in those areas. Now we're hearing a story from the Persian period. Persians after the Babylonians were about 100 years after uh, the fall of the southern kingdom to Babylon. We're at about 485 and earlier and later in the time in Persia. And Xerxes I is the, is the king of the Persians. Now, there are a lot of details I can't go into or I'd take all of our sermon time, but King Xerxes I had a disagreement with his queen Vashti who refused to follow an order of his. And after that, he was so discouraged, he decided he needed a new queen. She was banished uh, from the from, uh, his household, and he needed a new queen. And so he sent for the most beautiful young virgins of all of the Persian Empire. And right there in Susa, there was a lovely young Jewish woman, a young virgin named Esther. Esther had already had a hard life. Both of her parents had died, and she'd been taken in by her cousin, her kinsman, Mordecai. Mordecai had watched over Esther during this time. But as the king's court were scouring for the beautiful young virgins, Esther was so lovely. Of course, she came to mind, and she was sent in to the king's court. One by one, these women that were gathered would be perfumed and prepared, and one by one, they would go in to see the king. When it came to be Esther's turn, Esther, in her loveliness, delighted the king, and he decided to choose her as his queen. So Queen Vashti, his first wife, had been banished from the court. Now Queen Esther, an orphan, a Jew, had been made queen. But they didn't know that Esther was Jewish. Mordecai had, had advised her to keep that quiet, 
Day by day, Mordecai couldn't come into the court, but he'd go by and he'd send notices back and forth between, he would send his word and check in and see how Esther was doing inside the court. As time passed, a man named Haman, who was very wicked, who was very pompous, gained power within Xerxes I's court, and, King, and Haman, the head of the courtiers, wanted everyone to bow to him. He expected everyone to bow, but Mordecai, who was known to be Jewish, would not bow. Haman was so angry at this man, Mordecai, not bowing, that not only did he punish, Haman, or punish Mordecai, not only did he punish Mordecai's family, but he made a decision to punish all the Jews. And so an edict was written that on a certain day, all the people of the Persian Empire should rise up and kill all the Jews around them. So livid was Haman at how he'd been treated by Mordecai and Mordecai not bowing to him. And frankly, how gullible was King Xerxes to be talked into this by Haman, his head courtier. In our day, in the 21st century and in the second half of the 20th century, we can't read the story of the annihilation of the Jews and not think about the Nazi regime and the Holocaust how terrible it is to think of someone who is crazed, who, have, who is self-absorbed, who's looking for his own power, gaining power at such a level to issue orders to annihilate an entire people. It's, it, I read that story and I shudder and I imagine as I read it to you, you had similar, huh, this kind of visceral reaction, knowing that that kind of evil exists in the world and can gain that kind of power. Haman had issued that order, but it was to take place on a future date. And so Mordecai knew he had to do something about it. And so he sent word into Esther and basically said, okay, you're the queen, do something. Esther sent word back in the passage before what I read that she was not even allowed to approach the king People approached the king only when the king held out his scepter or sent for them specifically. She herself hadn't seen the king in 30 days. That's what she let him know. And Mordecai then, then sent another message back saying, you know, don't think that just because you're inside the palace, you're going to be immune to this. Perhaps you have, have risen to royal dignity for such a time as this. So Esther asked all the Jewish people of Susa to fast on her behalf, and she and her maids fasted for three days. And they held, and then she stood in the king's sight and waited, knowing she could be killed for approaching the king in that way. The king saw her and was pleased and held out his scepter to her. She went in and she asked him if she could hold a banquet just for him and for Haman. And they had two nights of banqueting. And the king was very pleased and said, ask for whatever you want. And the queen asked for the edict to be overturned. And the story goes on of how the Jewish people were saved through Esther's intervention, through her being placed in just such a place, at such a time as this. What does Esther's story say to us? We may hear that and think, yeah, like we're kings and queens. 
What kind of access and power do we have? But you know, if we think that way, we are thinking too small. This is a congregation of remarkable power and influence. This is a congregation whose members include judges and attorneys and physicians and nurses and school teachers and principals and financial advisors and all sorts of people who have the power to make decisions and to advise others in the decisions they make. There is a lot of power in this room to act, but how will we act? Will we act for the good? We can follow the example of Princess Diana and of Queen Esther advocating for those who are poor, for those who are on the margins. And we see how we do this in certain ways as a congregation, as we have done so in uh, gathering school supplies for, for uh, young kids so that they have all that they need when they go to school, or how we did this in our master center being used to host a meal for our Muslim neighbors to combat the kind of broad brushstroke demonizing of Muslims that's all too common in our culture are saying, no, we want to be neighbors, we want to listen, we want to get to know one another. I think about how Scott worked uh, in raising concern out of his power as associate pastor, raising concern about Imagine No Malaria and the terrible devastation of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa, how this congregation responded and said, you know what, that's not okay, we're going to speak in such a time as this, and how we made pledges and have given money to save lives. I was thinking about this, our, our current coins, uh, every month a different uh, organization receives the coins that we put in the offering plate, and this month the coins on the offering plate go to Imagine No Malaria. I'm in the process of emptying out the duplex where my parents had lived. My mom is now in an independent living apartment at Wesley Willows, and my dad is now in the health center we moved dad's big lazy boy chair uh, into the health center. And when it moved, I'm guessing a lot of men know what we found, coins. <laughs> you move the man's chair, there are coins underneath. And so I, as I went into the house, the lazy boy had moved and there's this spray of quarters and dimes and nickels. And I found myself on my knees picking up all these coins of my dad and, and holding them in my hand and thinking, huh, what do I do with these? Well. I got to put it in the offering plate at 8 o'clock. Those will go and go towards saving lives in sub-Saharan Africa. That probably would have been about enough for a latte if I'd wanted to go to Starbucks, but I could use that. I could use that for something really important. This congregation has power and access, and we can choose to use that for justice. We can choose to use that to speak out when people are demonizing minorities or to speak out for those who are most vulnerable. We can use that in our places of work, but also in our neighborhoods. We can use that as we go around day by day as Christians in how we behave in the world. There are all too many Christians that are known for judging others, for telling others who, who, is, go who is going to go to hell because they're not like us. We have an opportunity as Christians to model a different kind of Christian. What a responsibility that is. As people have, who are not Christian have images of Christians in this other way, to be the kind of Christian who gives money to 
persons in sub-Saharan Africa who could become infected with malaria to welcome the Muslim neighbors at our south, next to our south side at our master center to choose to use our power for the good and not to speak against a whole people group the way that Haman spoke against all the Jews. Imagine if in King Xerxes' fickleness, imagine if in that Haman had succeeded, if Esther hadn't spoken out, if the Jews of that whole region had been annihilated. What a tremendous loss to this world. It's unimaginable. Perhaps Esther rose to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Brothers and sisters, I, I'm not aware of any of us being royal, <laughs> but we are royal. We are a royal priesthood as children of God, as people who follow Jesus. And as people who follow Jesus, we are given power to use our knowledge, our creativity, our ideas for the good, to advise people how to live healthy lives, to advise people how to use their resources in ways that are not just piling up more money to create some kind of false security. Yes, we want a certain degree of security, but there's a security in Christ that is better than any bank account, no matter how high we try to make it to protect ourselves using our power for the good. We have a choice in how we are with our neighbors. We have a choice. And we learn that in part because of the witness of Queen Esther, who could have kept herself separate or tried to keep herself separate from the evil and wickedness Haman was trying to do, who instead risked herself, risked her life in approaching the king. We know this through the teaching of Esther, and we know this through the teaching of Jesus, who risked his life, who laid down his life for the good, for the salvation of others. When we are making decisions, may we think as Esther did, thinking of how this not just will affect ourselves, but how it affects the community, how it affects how Christians are seen in this community and throughout the world, what kind of ripples can we put out into the world? Can we use our power for the good? Amen.